Hello and welcome to EntoCast and today Nick and I are at the Royal Horticultural Society Gardens at Wisley and we'll be talking to some of the entomologists there. So we've just come into a lovely building, a lovely old building, which um, could you tell us a bit about this, Andrew? Uh, yes, hi, I'm, I'm Andy Salisbury, I'm a principal entomologist for the RHS. And yes, you've just walked into the laboratory building at Wisley, which was um, built at some, was completed at some point during the First World War, so it's now 100 years old, and it was designed to look like an old manor house. So it's been here for 100 years now, we're just sort of uh, walking past some of the old features. There's, there's yeah. an original foam yes. from uh, about 1920. <laughs> Um, and uh, yeah, we're, we're, the entomology room is upstairs in the laboratory, uh, and it's in the same room it always has been. So for over a hundred years, there's entomology going on uh, in this room. Uh, it, in many ways, it looks pretty similar to what it did a um, hundred years ago. Except there's computers now. Computers and more people. There's more, <laughs> more, there's, there's more of us. There was only one entomologist. Um, so we have, we have a fantastic view of the garden. We actually overlook the entrance, which has its advantages and disadvantages. We do get to hear everybody come into the garden and leave. And we do hear lots of people shouting, keep off the grass to their children, which, uh, <laughs> which is always fun. Um, but uh, as I say, the entomology section has been using this room since about 1918. Uh, and there's been some sort of reasonably famous entomologists associated with the RHS. Prior to 1918, uh, the person who trained the first RHS entomologist was Maxwell Lefroy. Uh, Lefroy is well known for starting off the company Rentakill being the person who actually started entomology as a research, applied entomology as a research topic at Imperial College. He chained the first full-time RHS entomologist, George Fox Wilson. And Fox Wilson started the entomology section here, and he did some interesting things early on. He was the first person to ever try a wasp, a parasitic wasp, in a glasshouse against glasshouse whitefly. Mm -hmm. And so more or less invented the whole glasshouse biological control uh, that we use these days. Also, early on in those days, we were trialling hot water treatment for uh, nematode, bio, uh, nematode control. Uh, uh, nematodes were busily destroying daffodil bulbs, narcissus bulbs, and it was a real threat to the daffodil industry of the uh, UK at the time. Uh, and it was found that dipping bulbs in a water bath at a certain temperature would kill off the nematodes, but not the bulb. And that research was done here at Wisley, and it saved the daffodil industry. To this day, our um, horticultural trainees and students here was the Creator Pest Collection, and uh, they get, the best one gets the Ramsbottom Prize, and uh, the Ramsbottom being the researcher who did the research uh, early on. We have fantastic views of the garden. Um, it's always it's always a pleasure to come in here uh, during the day, and we also it's, it's like all good entomology labs. There are things hanging from the ceiling, yeah, model bees, see, uh, model yeah, yeah, <laughs> model uh, paper mache ants, <laughs> uh, wasp nests hanging around. Uh, a hornet's nest in the corner. We also have the entomology library, which has been built up since 1918. So we have a great resource here. It's part of the uh, the Linden Library, which is one of the best uh, libraries in the world for horticulture and gardening. And that's spread over uh, the various RHS sites. We also have an insect collection, which has been built up since 1918. Can we have a look at some of the insects? We can indeed. And I'll, I'll, I'll get out a couple of drawers that I always like getting out. And the first thing I always go for is a drawer of the beetles because I'm a coleopterist at heart. And I always go for this drawer, which is a drawer of lots of shiny leaf beetles, uh, Chrysomelidae. And the reason I go for this drawer is because there's some, some significance to, to the RHS in here and RHS's past research. And as part of our work, we provide advice to our members. And over the years, 
sometimes these members send in something that uh, is new to the country. And so in this drawing, we have a good example of that. We have in one corner, the lily beetle. Some of these specimens, which have, I know not, have gone a bit orange. They've lost their red colour over the years. They are from some of the first infestations in the UK, parts of Surrey. And, and so important specimens that way. But moving on, we've got things like the rosemary beetle here in the, in the centre of the drawer. Uh, this feeds on rosemary, lavender and thyme and um, was first found in the UK in the mid-90s. Has since spread throughout the country. Doesn't cause that much damage, to be honest, to, to its host plants. But again, a, a, another non-native species found in the UK as part of the advisory service here. And more recently, there's, there's a, a blue mint beetle, a shiny metallic blue beetle that can be found on mint. First found uh, by one of our members who sent it into us. Typically turned up on a Friday afternoon. I had to quickly work out what it was. <laughs> uh, worked out um, that um, we do have a, a lovely green, metallic green, native blue, uh, native mint beetle. And uh, when I first read the letter, it said, I've got these shiny beetles on my mint. And I thought, oh, right, standard letter on green mint beetle. Uh, they turned out to be blue. And I thought, oh, right. Uh, soon worked out it was a northern European species that hadn't really been recorded outdoors here before. But the insect collection here has been built up since 1918. It's about... 23,000 specimens. It's a record of what we received via the advisory service, um, things that entomologists donated, and also of the biodiversity we have in each of the RHS gardens. So we, we do record things in the gardens. We do have reference specimens for that. Uh, and also we have drawers in this collection of, of, of reference specimens and voucher specimens from our research work. So when we've been recording biodiversity in projects such as our plants for bugs, we do actually keep a voucher of that of each species we identify for future reference. And it's also, uh, there are many reasons for that. For that um, to prove that uh, we did know what we were talking about, we did identify the right species, um, uh, and, and it, it's great to have that resource. Uh, there are other great things in here. The other entomologists will insist that uh, I do moths. I think. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're nodding away. Um, well, I get some of the some of the big moths. We do occasionally get some really nice, impressive things come in. And this drawer is, is one we like getting out because it has some of the really large moths, including things such as the the death's head hawk moth, uh, which is Europe's uh, largest moth. It's migratory in the UK. Uh, specimens are seen most years. Uh, but a wingspan of uh, getting on for 10 centimetres um, with the characteristic sort of almost skull-like markings on its on its head. Uh, now these specimens in our collection, I remember them coming in well because I got a phone call from uh, somebody in Godalming and they said, I got great big yellow caterpillars feeding on my uh, potatoes. I said, I know exactly what they are. They're death's head hawk moth caterpillars. I've never seen them. Please, can you bring them in? And I was really <laughs> pleased when we received them. We reared the caterpillars through and, and got the moths. I mean, the caterpillars are amazing. They are bright yellow. They're over 10 centimetres long and they have blue stripes down the side. And they eat an awful lot of potato leaves. <laughs> uh, so, so as well as, as, as the interesting moths, well, sometimes some of the moths we see are uh, big problems. And... Um, one of the big problems that, that gardeners are, are facing at the moment is a problem with box plants. Now, box gets uh, several different problems, in, including sort of several diseases like box box blight. But one thing that has come in recently is something called the box tree moth. 
Um, which one, which our entomologist is away on a field trip today, on, on a research trip to, to Bristol, uh, is researching, and that is this, the box tree moth. And um, for the entomologists out there, it's a, it's a large pyralid, one of the pyralid groups of moths. And it's quite large with a wingspan of over two centimetres. And it has um, uh, lightish green and black caterpillars that, that feed away on box. And uh, Steph, who is uh, Steph, Stephanie Bird, who is away today, is uh, carrying out some research on that into its, its life cycle, its biology. And we have um, recently set up a, a caged area uh, down at uh, Wisley Village uh, to do some research into that. So, yeah, so that's, that's our, our collection. Brilliant. Is there anything else in the lab that you want to show us? What's going on over Shall here? Maybe uh, the cockroaches. Do you maybe want to do the cockroaches? Maybe they'll hiss for the, they'll uh, hiss. Oh. If, they, if, they. if I poke them, you can hear the... I introduce them first? Yeah, introduce them. Okay, so these are our office pets. They are Madagascan hissing cockroaches. So if I gently disturb them... So yes, they're called hissing cockroaches because of that noise they make when you uh, alarm them. Um, they're an exotic species native to um, Madagascar and they would usually live on the forest floor. Um, but we keep them here in this tank with a nice heat mat and we usually use them for outreach purposes so that um, children in particular can kind of get really up close and personal uh, to an insect. Um, they, uh, otherwise they just live here in the office eating bananas and cat food. Oh, brilliant. And is this where you do sort of identifying of where the samples come in uh, from uh, gardeners? Yes, so when inquiries come in, uh, the bulk of what we do comes in by email with photographs, but we also do get samples sent in through the post, um, and then we can bring them over here to um, the two microscopes we've got, or well, we are due to upgrade to a Snazio microscope soon. Um, but yeah, and have a look. Um, and to try and diagnose and identify uh, what's going on. The samples that come in can be very variable. Sometimes it's just a leaf that's been eaten, so you mm. just kind of have to guess from the shape of the damage and things like that what's caused it. Sometimes the actual insect in question gets sent in. Sometimes they get sent in, but they don't make it through the rollers at the post office, so it's still <laughs> a, a bit difficult to guess quite what's going on. I was going to say, what is the best way to package and send an insect? <laughs> so our standard text says um, a, a sealed, non-crushable container. Mm. But that definitely helps. I think also we've had before um, raspberries and raspberry weevil. Uh, didn't quite make it in a, in a non-fermented fashion. <laughs> um, yeah, it can, be, it can be really variable what you get. Some people send things very securely and packaged. They also, some people include reams of information about it and some people just send you um, a, a photograph and then the subject will say, what is this? <laughs> and that's, that's all you've got to go on. So <laughs> it's definitely potluck when it comes to inquiries. Thank you all for joining us. Um, so we're here at the Royal Horticultural Society headquarters and we're here with the entomology team. And would you guys like to introduce yourselves? Uh, hi, I'm uh, Andy Salisbury. I'm the principal entomologist. I'm Hayley Jones, and I'm an entomologist at the RHS. I am Magdalena Bosov, and I'm a nematologist. Fantastic. So, I guess the first point we want to kind of cover is why are there entomologists at the RHS? 
The main reason the RHS has always had entomologists is to carry out, um, provide advice and carry out research into garden animals, uh, which are extensively, of course, the invertebrates. Yeah, it's a bit of a strange definition of entomology at the RHS because it really does cover any animal at all. The research that we do is tends to be a lot focused on the pests and how to stop them from damaging your plants. But we do some research on beneficial insects, pollinators, and how to encourage wildlife into your garden as well. Obviously, we know pollinators are great. We need to encourage them into our garden. What else do we need to be encouraging into our gardens? Well, I might be a little bit biased from my background, uh, but encouraging things like moths and other insects that kind of form part of the food chain. The kinds of ones where you can't always get people to be enthusiastic about them, but if you position them as food sources for the birds and the other things that they are keen on, then uh, it's a good good place to start. I would say a healthy soil, um, just a diversity of, of insects and microorganisms in your soil. Yeah, yeah and, and we actually do have have carried out research which has really shown that uh, garden plants can be great for a diverse range of wildlife. Mm -hmm. We had a project called the Plants for Bugs research, which we've now published two papers from. We did a lot of interpretation for, for the gardener. And what we found with that is that you don't have to have native plants to get wildlife in your garden. The more plants you have, the more wildlife you get. And one of the big conclusions actually was that to get a wide range of vertebrates, sort of predators, which you eat the aphids, is actually, you need some of those pests there as well. So without aphids, you don't get ladybirds. So that's one of the key messages we're now sort of trying to get out there to gardeners to accept a, a few pests or a few problem animals so that they will get the beneficials and may get a bit more of a balance. And of course, a garden that's full of life, is full of animal life, is vital as well as the flowers. Why would you say that it's vital? I mean, why can't we just have the animals in the nature reserve a few miles away? What, what role do gardens play? Well, gardens are playing an increasingly important part. I mean, gardens make up it's, it's something like a quarter of most of the cities in the UK. And together, they are actually an important nature reserve in their own right. And they have the benefit of being extensive and spreading networks through urban areas and therefore being able to act as corridors for wildlife and connect up those wild spaces because those wild spaces can't exist in isolation. What has been the reaction, though, to this research from gardens? Because obviously trying to introduce more pests and things into your garden is not really what you would think of as gardeners doing, typically. I think that people are getting more and more receptive to this idea. We definitely hear from a lot of people who they want advice on how to tackle a pest in their garden, but they want the most environmentally friendly solution. They don't um, necessarily want to go straight to the pesticides. And it kind of links up with some of our other research on control, where we're leaning more and more to integrated pest management and finding a range of solutions. And I think people are, they're keen to hear more and how they can kind of have a more nuanced approach to their gardens especially with the high profile nature of pollinator declines mm. i think people will continue to become more and more interested yeah i mean it's certainly we are seeing more and more of what i would say the more interesting inquiries you get which is not the straightforward how do i kill it type inquiry <laughs> as, as, as we used to get we're getting more and more of the oh i found this in my garden what is it you know what, what do i do i encourage it is it is, we are, and they are the best inquiries sometimes we have to do quite a bit of research to find out what they are but uh, it's actually great to inform people about what things are doing in their garden and the insects they're getting in oh we get some quite a few on uh lovely insects such as um 
uh, such as the uh, rose chafers, which uh, are a chafer beetle, which is a larvae, is often found in compost heaps. And the adult has a, a metallic, it's about two, two centimetres long, and it's metallic green, quite a bulky beetle, often found in flowers, maybe having a little bit of nibble, but it's not really important. And it's actually great to tell people not to worry about these things, and in the compost heap, they're beneficial. Um, obviously, things like wasp beetles and um, the hoverflies are quite a frequent inquiry these days. So. And caterpillars. We still do get inquiries of these caterpillars eating my plant, but we're seeing more and more of, I found this caterpillar, what is it? Is it friend or foe? Rather than kind of leaping straight to conclusions. Especially with hawk moth caterpillars, we get a lot of photographs of those. <laughs> There is a kind of change in perception of people in their garden that we're undergoing at the moment as we're becoming more aware of our impact on the environment. I think people are taking that to their garden. I think a lot of the response to news about declines has been people saying, well, what can I do? Like, can I help this situation? And the popularity of kind of seed mixes for bees and other things that are marketed in that way, it has really shown that people are kind of they're really following this idea. So you've talked a couple of times, I think pollinators have come up. Is this a real flagship almost set of species to help people introduce insects into their garden, to get them to encourage them to introduce wildlife into their garden, do you think? Yeah, I think so. There's been so much news about pollinators and they are very colourful and charismatic in general. So I think it is a good entry route to get people into wildlife in general. Yeah, and of course in gardens... People grow flowers. That's, that's mm. extensively right. Yeah. right. Lots of people have a garden. <laughs> they grow flowers, and of course, the most obvious insects, often when you're growing, uh, when you've got flowers, are the variety of pollinators that will visit them. I was just wondering if uh, we had sort of the same amount of news coverage for things that cycle soil, for instance, mm. which is obviously very important to garden. Do you think would have this sort of change in people's thinking as well? Uh, I, I, I think it would, but I, th- I think the pollinators are beginning us to, to help us, le- as, as has been said, lead us into that. And some of the research we've been carrying out at Wisley is leading us down into encouraging insects and other invertebrates at all levels in the garden. Yeah, and I think that's a challenge for entomologists and uh, other people who study different organisms, because obviously the the colourful bees and the butterflies, they really have everything going for them to start Mm -hmm. with. They look good in photographs, anyone can see them. And so those of us that study the less charismatic looking ones perhaps have to work a bit harder and be a bit more creative. But I think people will be receptive if you can do that. And you mentioned uh, diversity uh, was a good way to, even if it was foreign species, was a good way to encourage more beneficials into the garden. Is there anything that people need to be doing in the gardens other than just increasing the diversity of plants that will uh, aid beneficials? Um, I mean, yeah, we, we, we did find, to be honest in our experiment, we did find that, that the more native plants you have, the more invertebrates by mm-hmm. number you get of, of all different groups, whether they're feeding on the plants themselves or feeding on the decomposing plant matter, doing a bit of nutrient recycling or pollinators. But I mean, the key message was more plants, the yeah. better. Um, also, the messages we're trying to get out there is, is as we've already mentioned, going down more the integrated pest management approach or um, basically trying to avoid the use of pesticides, asking yourself, you know, do I really need to spray it? Is there another method I can use which won't harm the beneficials? Uh, and just more or less encourage people to grow more stuff is, is, is what it's coming down to. I think that ties in as well with some of the the wider activities of the Royal Horticultural Society to get people to grow things, even if they haven't got much space, you know, if they live in a 
city house where it just has like a tiny paved over front garden to get some pots out and to kind of green up and the the scheme's actually called greening grey britain and trying to get people to pledge to like green up a little space even if they think they've not got much to start with the greening grey britain scheme it's all about reaching out to people to tell them the benefits of having more greenery uh, in their gardens and the areas surrounding where they live in terms of flood prevention filtering pollutants out from like that come off of the road towards your house and thermoregulation so trying to give the reasons why it benefits as well as because Mm. things are beautiful and nice to have Mm. in your garden and then therefore encourage people to pledge to green up a little space anything from a pot to you know their whole garden or a local park or you know one of those roundabouts that perhaps the community could get together to plant up and yeah and try and get those people in in the very grey urban areas to really green it up. So if someone did want to green up their space is there advice that comes with this maybe plant species they could do what are native plants they could plant? Um yeah uh not being much of a horticulturalist I wouldn't make a specific <laughs> recommendation but there's there's lots of pages on the RHS website devoted to this cause of all kinds of ideas for all kinds of situations and especially the more kind of interesting conundrums like do you want to be able to park your car on your front garden or front drive and are there ways you can integrate that so you're not just making it hard standing but you've got better drainage and greenery still while having that functionality that can be really important and do you see um once people have an interest in garden entomology introducing more insects into their garden do they become more interested in entomology overall have you seen any sort of trends with that I definitely see, I'm not sure how wide this trend is, but I follow a lot of Facebook groups that are um, things like Insects of Britain and Europe and then all the subgroups. And from what I see on there, it does seem like people start seeing a couple of things that interest them, usually in their garden. And some people do seem to go on to really develop an interest, start submitting records to iRecord and become kind of, you know, proper natural historians as a result of that initially peaked interest. Yeah, I, th- I think there is an awful lot of enthusiasm out there. In recently, we've been involved with the Country University Project, one of the partners on what's known as the Blooms of Ease Project, which is a, a bumblebee recording citizen science project, which has had both sort of the design side of things, getting people to test specific dahlias and seeing whether there's any difference between bumblebees visiting them, uh, right way through to just using the app to help identify bumblebees in their garden uh, and the plants they're visiting, and they can submit records or just use the app. And, that had a, a massive take-up, I think, uh, several thousand downloads of, of this app. The app has now won an award at the Bees Needs, Defra's Bees Needs Awards. Uh, and the, the enthusiasm we get from uh, our gardeners for getting involved in projects and uh, is, is, is amazing, I think. So I just wonder if we could spend a little time talking about each of your individual research uh, goals. So each of you do different research in entomology. So maybe, Andy, do you want to tell us about what sort of research you've done here? I've been heavily involved in the Plants for Bugs research, which was a design experiment looking at, uh, which had beds of native garden plants, near native garden plants, which are northern hemisphere garden plants related to those we had in the native beds, but not considered native to the UK. And then exotic garden plants, and there's about 14 different species in each in each of these uh, treatments, as it were. And they all serve the same garden function. The way I always explain it is, one corner of a bed always had a climber. So it'd be a native climber, a honeysuckle, uh, a, a European honeysuckle, not native to the UK, and then something from the exotic southern hemisphere, not nat- not not related. 
and we uh, recorded insects off them by you know, those visiting the flowers. Uh, used a vortis suction sampler. I always describe that as a um, an insect hoover, basically. <laughs> um, and uh, we had pitfall traps, basically cups in the ground which the invertebrates fell into. And over four years, we recorded about I think it's eighty or ninety thousand different invertebrates. We identified about sixty thousand of those down to a species. And we're still analysing the data. And so far, we've only looked at abundance. We haven't looked at diversity as an all. But the first paper we did was on, on the pollinating insects, those insects visiting the flowers. In fact, uh, we weren't allowed to call them pollinators because we didn't actually observe them carrying pollen from one plant <laughs> to another of the same species. We had to call them flower-visiting insects. Uh, and we found with that one that, uh, yes, the natives, for some groups of the um, uh, pollinators, were more attractive. We did attract more uh, flower-visiting insects in. And exotics generally lower. But what we did find is exotic plants tend to flower later. Because the exotic plants are flowering later, they provided a late season resource and were still sort of very valuable. So the conclusion was, on the pollinator side, plant a variety of plants, maybe bias it towards native and northern hemisphere related plants, but stick some exotics in there for late season mm. pollinators. And we also published insects on the plants, so the herbivores, the uh, decomposers, those feeding on decomposing organic matter on the plants, uh, and the predators, things like spiders and parasitic wasps. And there we did find, again, it was the, the natives, which, which did better. Only marginally so, only about 10% more invertebrates. Um, but a major point there was the more you plant, the more invertebrates you get from all groups. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really matter where in the world they're from. So if you're a really keen wildlife gardener, maybe head more towards the native plants. But on the whole, just garden. <laughs> no, just have some plants in your garden. Now have a wide range. Maybe, you know, don't cut all your flower heads off. Leave some decomposing organic matter. Don't be too tidy. Mm -hmm. Try and avoid the pesticides mm -hmm. and you'll get a garden full of wildlife no matter what you plant. Unfortunately, we did. We were also to recommend, able to recommend if you really didn't want your plants nibbled, then maybe go for purely some, some exotics. But uh, we're trying to avoid telling, getting people to do that. I've moved on from that now and are now looking at uh, the invertebrates on green walls. So uh, green walls is another way of greening up cities and there's all these uh, mitigation of, um, of temperature. They can help building insulation and cooling urban areas, mm -hmm. especially when you've got a limited amount of ground area. Uh, but nobody has ever looked at the invertebrates that you get on these plants, mm -hmm. uh, whether there's any difference in the species, the height of the plant used. And so we, we began to look at that and hopefully we're going to take that research forward. So I've been doing, again, using the Vortis suction sampler to, to take insects off, off that. In other areas of research, we sometimes get, uh, which will lead nicely into sort of some research Haley, Haley does, is we sometimes see new things to the country, uh, new, new, often pests, unfortunately, found in gardens reported to us so we often do a little bit of research there and produce a, a quick paper and a quick bit of information for gardeners i mean recently we have something called the blue mint beetle and uh, a northern european species which never been in britain before and it turned up about three or four years ago they've also had box tree moth has arrived in the uk and is now spreading and people can submit records of that via a web survey and in the past, it's, you know, it's been going on a long time. Uh, in the past, in the 1940s, it was lily beetle, which was new, and we're still recording that spread. But that does lead nicely on to um, some of Haley's research, which uh, three years ago we got the Agapanthus school midget. Okay, so there's two main topics that I do research on, and they're quite stark contrast, because one of them is the Agapanthus school midge, which is a species that, when it was discovered by RHS entomologists, was not only new to the country, but actually new to science. 
And then the other topic that I can, I'll talk about is slugs and snails, which are pretty much the oldest pest in the book. <laughs> so the Agapanther school midge story starts before I joined the RHS two and a half years ago, um, when a sample came in from actually one of the horticultural advisors' gardens. And when Andy looked at it, it wasn't something that you'd ever seen before. So Agapanthus flowers, if you've never seen one, they grow with big strap-like leaves and then a tall stem grows out of them um, and the bud opens out into kind of a sphere of little purple or white flowers. Then, So this insect, this fly, its, its larvae develop inside the buds before they open and it turns the buds into galls which for a plant that's grown purely for its aesthetic value is a bit of a problem. <laughs> so Andy saw this sample, went out into the garden here at Wisley and discovered that actually it was already in the garden, liaised with various experts and it became apparent that actually it's never been seen before at all. It was new to science. Since then, we've talked to lots of people and we've discovered that it's almost certainly native to South Africa, which is where Agapanthus is native to. Um, and there were records of symptoms there, but no one had ever taken the time to describe the species that was causing them. Uh, so since then, we've described the species. It's got a name now, which is Enigma diplosis agapanthi. It's actually a new genus as well of gall-causing midges. And I've been doing some research on the biology and life cycle of this insect and ways that we can try and control it. But starting completely from scratch is a very interesting experience, not something that I'd ever had to do before but it's kind of satisfying because everything you find out is brand new information and like genuinely advances the knowledge that we have so yeah we we haven't had any luck so far in ways to control it because the larvae are inside the flower buds yeah. most things that you would apply uh, we've we've tried different pesticides and biological controls but generally they fail to penetrate into where the larvae are actually living we're looking at the possibility of nematode drenches because when the larvae are fully grown, they drop to the soil and pupate underground. So we think that that's probably going to be the, the most likely route to control them with a nematode drench or an entopathogenic fungi. But it's all very theoretical at the moment, so watch this space. And then my other main area of research is slugs and snails. So I think we've already explained that RHS members can send in their gardening questions to us. And if it's anything to do with animals, it comes through to our office. And every year we put out a top 10 of the pests that we get the most inquiries about. And the number one in eight of the last 10 years has been slugs and snails. <laughs> and it's, you know, they're the perennial problem. And even though there's a huge array of control methods out there, they're obviously, none of them are working that well because they, the inquiries just keep on coming in. And so we've launched a whole scheme of research trying to get better control for gardeners, hopefully using integrated pest management principles. So I had uh, one big experiment that was in collaboration with BASF, who produced the nematode biological control for slugs and snails. And in that, we've been testing combinations of the pesticides metaldehyde and ferric phosphate and the nematode biological control with mulch so kind of taking steps towards combining different control methods to get a better level of control and we include metaldehyde because it's kind of the standard that gardeners expect it is the most effective most scientifically supported way of controlling slugs and snails 
but we now know that there's lots of problems with non-target animals being affected and contamination of waterways. So we're hoping to find alternative controls that can be almost as effective as metaldehyde or ways to use metaldehyde more sparingly, but still get the effects that gardeners want to get. So this experiment, we've been combining some of these control methods and I'm actually analysing the data right now. So I can't, can't give you any hints on uh, what it looks like the results are going to be, but we will be hopefully publishing that next year and talking about it and hoping to tie in with the concept of integrated pest management and introducing home gardeners to the ideas and principles behind that. Because I think a lot of what they do is IPM. Uh, but they probably they wouldn't think of it that way. And so if we can really kind of ease that idea in, um, then I think it will really work. And one of the other kind of types of controls are barriers for slugs and snails. And there's loads of them that are recommended. Things like eggshells, grit, copper. People recommend all kinds of weird and wonderful things. And most of them have pretty much no scientific evidence for how well they work. So I'm hoping to fill that knowledge gap. Um, and I did a pilot study this year using a citizen science approach. So we recruited 40 schools, senior schools, and they grew lettuces in pots. So each school had six pots and they protected their pots with horticultural grit, so like kind of small, sharp gravel, copper tape, pine bark mulch, eggshells and wool pellets. And then they recorded damage to their leaves so we wanted to introduce some scientific concepts to these children so we set up a scheme whereby they could use dice rolling to pick leaves at random from the plant so then each week they'd take five leaves and they would use grid square on acetate to measure how many centimeter squares were damaged and undamaged and so far the data that we've got in we had a few teething troubles some of the methods were a bit tricky but it looks like we have got significant results, which are not too surprising in that it looks like copper tape worked the best. And copper tape is, of all those methods, the one that has the most scientific evidence behind it. Although admittedly, most of the experimental work is very much in lab conditions and there's not much showing it working out in the field in practice. And so I'm really excited by this and are hoping to do more work on this area and maybe launch a similar project with more participants so we can really build up kind of a bulk of data to give some real support for these methods which so far have been pretty much, you know, old wives tales you might say. And these are also methods that home gardeners are really keen on because they are non-lethal even to the slugs, they are just protecting the plants that they want to protect. So if we can really figure out which of those methods actually works, and which are not worth wasting your time and money on, then that would, that would be really helpful for home gardeners. So um, here at RHS, we tend to move more towards biological control and more natural ways to control pests. And my research focuses more on the soil and the soil environment. And I helped uh, Hayley during her slow and snail project, and we realised that the nematodes that's used as a biological control is not as effective. But we're working with a living organism, and obviously a, organ a living or organism comes across more challenges when added to the soil. You have predatory mites. Um, the moisture conditions is really important for them to find the host because they use uh, chemoreceptors to find the host and penetrate. 
and also the level of organic material, which is a source of bacteria and is their is food. So my project looks looks at these nematodes. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know what a nematode is. is It's a really small worm. Mm-hmm. So I'm adding them to different soil types. And over a period of 16 weeks, I tried to see how they survive. Is there a decline in their numbers in time? Because soil type and the site-specific conditions within your soil will influence their survival. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to figure out what, what, what can a gardener do to create optimal conditions for long-term survival because it's a more expensive product and it is sensitive and we want to be able to supply our members with the best possible advice how to use this product um, in in ideal conditions. So one of the things that came across just hearing you talking about your research, it's quite interesting, that quite a lot of the time you have species turning up in people's gardens, which are either new to the UK or in some cases even new to science. Why do you think that is? That we find them in gardens first and not in nature reserves? Or... I, I think a large part of it is, is we have, I mean, the RHS is getting on for half a million members now. And you know, even 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it was about a quarter of a million. Just the sheer number of people out there who notice things going on in their garden, notice that they, they don't necessarily know what it is. Uh, a lot of our gardeners, uh, gardeners of long, long standing and been doing it for many years, they spot something new in their garden and think, oh, what's that? And they will send it to us. I think that's, that, that's largely, largely it. And also just the sheer variety of plants that are grown in gardens. I mean, what, one stat I always um, love about gardens is um, something called Jennifer Owen did a 30-year study of her own garden in Leicester. And she basically monitored whatever she could in that garden and got it identified by, if not by herself, by local by experts, national and local. And I think over the 30 years, and this ended up as a QI question at one point, <laughs> is, is where do you go to find the most new species um, to science? And it turns out that Jennifer Owen, in her back garden, had uh, found five new species of parasitic wasps to science <laughs> and about 30-odd species new to the UK. Uh, and overall, about a third of all the insect species in the UK were found in that one wow. average size garden <laughs> mm. on the outskirts of Leicester, in a suburban <laughs> garden. So, you know, that, that shows many things really, just, you know, it's a case of looking and also how valuable really gardens can be for, for wildlife and the variety you can get there. Fantastic. And I was wondering, so I think one of the key messages if we want to promote in, insects or wildlife in general in our gardens is more plants, more variety of plants. Um, I just wondered if you had any other tips or tricks uh, that we can do in our garden supermarket wildlife you know, things like bee hotels ponds that kind of thing you hit on the big one we, we, we always uh, we always mention first a, a pond you've immediately created a, a an extra habitat so you'll immediately get uh, sort of different species of beetle you'll get uh, depending on the size and the shape dragonflies damselflies well, we have to mention the vertebrates i suppose as well so you know you'll, you'll you'll get frogs and toads coming in but insects also need a source of water so, you know, even plastic bowl or even a, a, just a bird bath will provide water for insects. I mean, bees do need a drink occasionally. I mean, that's both honeybees and some of the, the wild bees, the bumblebees, etc., do need a drink. 
as do things like wasps and stuff. So a water source in a garden is a great resource. Uh, you mentioned bee hotels. So yes, they're also very good at compost heap. I think I mentioned that with the, you know, you get some interesting creatures such as the uh, rose-shaped larvae in those and lots of predator-prey interactions going on in compost heaps. They're amazing springtails. And we touched on earlier about the not leaving it too tidy, so having mm. some leaf litter um, and some bits of wood and branches that are, you know, allowed to decompose naturally rather mm. than being quickly tidied away. Yeah, yeah, with the wood pile, of course, you know, touches mm-hmm. on that. Um, and even when it comes to, to things like lawns, I mean, lawns are, are possibly the most high input thing you can have in a garden. Getting a perfect lawn is nigh on impossible. We have, we have a whole team of people at Wisley who look after the turfed areas. And certain areas they, they will look after and you will get that perfect sort of two centimetres long piece of grass with patterns in it. But I mean, it, it's incredibly difficult to do that in reality. But um, a south facing lawn, sandy lawn can, get, can actually provide a home for solitary bees. And all sorts of creatures will actually use lawn. Use left a few flowers go in the lawn as well. As those, um, they can attract more pollinators as well. So even your lawn can provide, uh, if you just accept that it's not going to be perfect, it can, be, uh, <laughs> can provide for wildlife. And I was wondering as well, could you guys describe what it's like day to day as an entomologist at the Royal Horticultural Society? So we receive inquiries from our members, and this could be anything from invertebrates to mammal, everything in the garden. Come. And we answer, we try to give a good answer to these questions. Yeah, so in our office, it's quite a nice environment to work. We've got the long history that kind of gives it quite a nice atmosphere, as well, of course, being in beautiful surroundings. Mm. So if, if you're in the office all day, there's nearly always the opportunity to go out into the gardens if you want to and it makes for a very nice place to work yeah it is I, I, sometimes we, we we're in a, a corner of the, the laboratory building at wisley which was uh, completed at some point in the first world war and it looks like a really old building but we're, we're in a corner of it and we look over the garden and Sometimes I, I sort of sit, sit in a lab and I'm supposed to work here. I just get distracted by the view <laughs> out the window. So that's, that's a, a great thing. And, and of course, we get to meet the garden staff, the, the advisors, working with the plant pathologists, the, the botanists, the wide range of science team, the curatorial team, people looking after the garden, mm-hmm. our librarians, just the, the whole atmosphere of Wisley and the people who work here. There's, there's a lot of people who are really enjoying their jobs and really mm-hmm. enjoying creating a garden and atmosphere that's, that's, that's absolutely lovely. It's yeah. a very nice place to work. Yeah, where do I apply? <laughs> yeah, I, I I would also add that um, one of the best things about working with the RHS is the variety because we get to work on so many different invertebrates and other topics and school interact projects. with, yeah, yeah, work with schools, work with volunteers, yeah. different people, different places, different gardens within the garden. <laughs> it's definitely a super interesting place. And the, and the range of people we get to talk to as well. You know, one, one minute we can be talking to an expert gardener of sort of 40, 50 years experience. The next minute we could be explaining something to a primary school child <laughs> um, uh, who can be equally knowledgeable. It must be said sometimes <laughs> so they, they can surprise you. Uh, and then, you know, the next minute, you can, uh, we have a great media expertise here at the RHS. So occasionally, very occasionally, you, you end up sort of giving an interview to Gardener's World and end mm. up on the telly or, or, or even talking to Humphreys on uh, the Today programme, which is quite nerve wracking. I'm <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, um, I, I think you've already said what the best part of your job is, but is there a worst part? Is there anything you don't like about the job? 
it's very seasonal. Mm. So in as the temperature ramps up in the spring, things get busier and busier. All the inquiries are coming in and you've got all your research projects going. So it gets a bit frantic in the summer and there's the flower shows. And then when we come out the other side, then it calms down. And sometimes in the middle of the winter, you're like, oh, it's quite... It's a bit dull at the moment. It's not much to do. <laughs> so <laughs> we're very, very seasonal. So if you've ever wondered what an entomologist does at the RHS, now you know a lot, a heck of a lot. I just want to say thank you again to our guests. They were all fantastic. If you want to follow them or you want any more information about what they do, then we'll include all this information in the show notes so check that out on our website or on whatever podcast provider you're using so all I was left to say is thank you again to our guests thank you for listening and if you have any questions just chuck us an email at entocast at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter at entocast we're on instagram at ento underscore cast and yeah check out our website www.entocast.com Thank you again for listening. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye.